this morning, uh, I have the privilege of continuing a series that we started about three weeks ago, a series that we're simply calling Squad Goals. And uh, in this series, we are looking at the one another statements of the Bible. And if that language is kind of foreign to you, no worries. It's really as simple as it sounds. Uh, the, the one another statements of the Bible are, are literally that. There are 59 or so one another statements in the Bible. These are rules of engagement that God gives to this big family called the church and says, here's how I want you all to treat each other. And there are about 59 of those, like love one another and, and serve one another um, and, and carry one another's burdens, confess to one another. And um, we're, we're looking at some of those, obviously not all um, of them. And uh, by the way, there are many reasons God gives us these rules of engagement when it comes to how we treat and relate to each other, but uh, there are a couple of key ones that we talked about in the first week, and I'm just going to revisit those briefly as we continue our series. God gives us these rules of engagement, these ways of relating to each other, I think for his brilliance and for our best. I don't know if you knew this, uh, it, it is true. One of the reasons that God created this movement called the church was for publicity. Like God knew he was brilliant. He knew the whole time that he was super wise, but he wanted his brilliance to get out. He wanted the heavenly world and the earthly world. He wanted the spiritual and the physical realm to both get led in on just how brilliant he was. And in all of his brilliance, God said, I know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to create the church. Why? Because... When the heavenly realms and the physical world see the way they relate to each other, they will say, no way, squad goals. That's what we want our relationships to be like. That's a picture of what relationships should really be like. Um, because the heavenly realms will marvel. These people should not get along. These people should not embrace each other like this. These people should not be so for each other. They're from different racial backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. They're from different socioeconomic corners. They believe differently politically. And yet look at them. How do you explain this except whoever authored this must be brilliant? And God says, me, it was me. So part of this invitation to one another is for the brilliance of God, but it's also for our best. Um, if you read this book, you will very quickly find out that whatever you were created to be, you cannot be without other people journeying with you. You just cannot be everything you were called to be without the relationships that come alongside and journey with you. You can try, but you will never be as spiritually vibrant as you were called to be without other people. God didn't design you to thrive in isolation. 
just the way it is. And for many of us, we've been trying. Maybe I'm going to be the exception, but, but you, you are not the exception. You are not going to be the exception. It is for our best that we one another each other. You cannot get to where God has called you to go and do all that he's called you to do without other people in your world. And we're going to revisit that here in a moment. This whole one anothering thing is for your best. If you have any investment in your best, then you want to be a part of living out these one another's. But it's not just for your best spiritually, it's even for your best physically. Um, it's fascinating just to read some of the, the research on um, one anothering and relationshiping um, with each other. Um, there was um, one study done, uh, the Alameda County study in, in, in California, and uh, it was really fascinating. They um, followed the lives of 7,000 people um, over the course of nine years. And their findings were fascinating, but here's the bottom line of what they found. They found that those who had meaningful relationships were, were connected meaningfully were just more than two times more likely to live. I think living is a good thing, if you ask me. Given the same circumstances they found that people were just more likely to live longer because of uh, relationships. And that they showed th- th- this in um, a variety of, of different very, very fascinating ways. One of the things they did was just studied um, these folks and, and uh, discovered that people who had less than ideal health habits, like smoking or over-drinking, um, or, you know, less than stellar dietary choices actually had better health if they had good relationships than people who worked out all the time and ate super healthy but didn't have meaningful relationships. And I love what one pastor, John Ortberg, says. He says, so it's pretty much it's better to eat Twinkies with meaningful relationships than broccoli by yourself. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, they, they, um, they published something in the um, American Medical Association, put this thing out, which was really fascinating. Uh, for some morbid reason, they did an experiment in which they infected 276 people with a virus that causes the common cold. And when they observed these people, they found out that the people who were meaningfully connected with other people were just far less likely to get sick. They just fought off sickness much better. They even found that that people who are in better relationships produced less mucus. That's weird. (laughs) Um, So anyway, if you don't have good relationships, like you're a super snotty person um, is is really what... (laughs) The goal of that was, but all of this just reminds us that when it's all said and done, this invitation to one another isn't just something that helps us get at the brilliance of God, but it helps us get at our own best. It's not just something that puts the brilliance of God on display in the spiritual and the physical realm. It's something that is for our best spiritually And physically, you're just going to live longer. You're just going to be happier. You're just going to be healthier if you engage these one another's. And so um, 
we, we started this series a number of weeks ago, and this morning I'm going to pick up um, uh, pretty much where Taylor Long left off last week. I listened to Taylor Long's message like 52 times, uh, maybe, but man, I'm so thankful for this young brother who got up here and handled the word of God with integrity and honesty and just applied it so, so well. So Taylor, if you're in this room, brother, yes, you are. Thank you so much, man, for serving our folks so well um, last week. So I, I'm going to pick up by looking at a passage of scripture that is, is pretty well um, built into the DNA of who we are as a church, particularly when it comes to why we believe community is so important. So um, feel free to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, we're going to be looking at one verse in Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we're going to have the verse um, up here on the screen. Um, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 24. Um, all right, here's, here's what it says. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let me read that one more time. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. One of the ways that we get to put the brilliance of God on display and we get to help bring about God's best in each other is by this practice of spurring one another. Spur one Another, I think it's just good for us to acknowledge that spurring people doesn't sound like a great idea. And yet here it is. It doesn't sound good, um, but here it is. Now, uh, even though spur is not a word that we use in our everyday uh, language, it's pretty intuitive. Um, the word probably means exactly what you think it means when you hear it, um, to spur. Um, when I hear the word spur, if no one told me anything about this word, um, I would think about my, my wife. Um, let me explain. Uh, when, <laughs> when, I, <laughs> when my wife was uh, young at some point, she watched a ridiculous movie called uh, the Man from Snowy River or something dumb. Uh, like this, and immediately fell in love with horses and like the ranch life for some odd <laughs> reason. Um, and um, the truth be told, I occasionally catch her looking at me with that like, I so wish you were a cowboy, um, but you're not. Um, you know that look like super judgy, maybe, no, okay, maybe it's just me. But I catch her looking up. It's like, listen, life is full of choices and you have made yours. So um, here we go. But when I think about this word, that's the picture that comes to mind. You know, when I think about this, this word spur, I, I think about my wife. I, I think about the, the, the Dixie chicks like, cowboy, take me away. That's what comes to my mind. Um, uh, I think about 
you know, the snowy dude um, on a horse. Uh, I think about this picture up here on the screen. Um, this is what comes to mind. Like, I think about that guy, the cowboy, and his boot. Every time I look at this picture, I just think of Josh Soulsgiver, for those of you who know him. I just feel like that's him. That's him. I cannot confirm or deny it. Um, Because I I, I get this picture of these spinny spurs um, that that this cowboy would would, would put on his... um, boots um, and, and kind of poke into the side of his horse to, to get it to move on course. Spurs. Um, that's exactly what I think about. And for many of you, you, you may have a, a similar um, image as well. Those metal thingies that give the horse an unpleasant prompt to, hey, walk this way. By the way, I, I wonder if horse heaven isn't a place where horses get to ride human beings for a change. Like, you say nay. How do you like it? You know, um, I don't know. That's not in the Bible. Anyway. Um, but my thought would be pretty accurate. Uh, a spur is simply something that agitates It's simply something that provokes into action. That's really what the idea is. It's something that agitates or provokes into action. And this is what the Bible tells us that we ought to do for each other if we are going to be squad goals. If we are going to put the brilliance of God on display and bring the best out of each other. Um, We are going to need to provoke and agitate each other, which again, I realize for some of you, that's like your life verse. You, now you're going to circle it and print it out uh, a few times. But it's such a counterintuitive thing to say, especially in a, in a Christian context, especially as we're talking about being for each other and for each other's best. And yet here it is. All my life, I was told, do not provoke people. All my life, I was told, do not agitate people, and yet here it is in the Bible, spur one another, provoke one another, agitate one another. Um, There's an ancient proverb in the Old Testament that I think helps give some sense of what this idea means, and just want to look at it for a a few moments. It's um, the 27th proverb. Verse number 17, but here's what it says. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. This is such a helpful Verse. Now, let me say something about iron for, for a, a quick second. When, when the, the, the writer to the Proverbs of the Proverbs uses this word iron, um, he's not talking again about that d- device for removing creases that lives in your laundry room. He's not talking about the FE symbol um, on the periodic table. He's not even talking about the raw material iron. He's not talking about that raw metal Um, material known as iron. When he says iron, he's talking about that thing 
that happens when a skilled metal worker goes into his shop and he shapes and he forms and he skillfully fashions until eventually he has created a cutting instrument. Like an axe, but more likely like a sword. When the Bible uses this word iron in this verse, it's speaking about a cutting instrument. And most likely speaking about a sword, a fashioned and a finished weapon that's designed to lacerate something. Woo! I I like that. And excuse me if I get a little happy about cutting instruments in church. But but the thing is, is this reminds me about you. Because I don't know if you knew this, but you are holy iron. Maybe you didn't know it, but, but that's who you are. You are, as a matter of fact, a heavenly Weapon fashioned in the glorious shop of the master metal worker, God himself, designed to lacerate some darkness. Designed to to cut at some strongholds, designed to bring down the chains that hold people in oppression. That's you. You are a holy weapon. On account of the spirit who lives in you and the word of God that's on your lips, you have the ability in many ways to push back and to lacerate some darkness. I love this picture here in the Proverbs. And I'm just letting you know, in case you didn't know, you, you're a weapon. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been weaponized by the spirit of The living God. Now, you can start to see potentially what's being suggested here. As the grading of metal against metal can bring about sharpness in the weapon that is a sword. So this act of agitating or provoking of saint to saint can bring about sharpness in the weapon that is you. And yet if you read it, none of that process sounds particularly comfortable or thrilling And as we'll see in a moment, because many times it is not. It's an uncomfortable thing that brings about a result that is uncommon. Um, And you guys can let me know if I need to switch my mic pack or anything like that. Um, The thing about iron weapons, though, um, is... They have a sneaky tendency to go dull. Which is why they need to be sharpened. Which is why this proverb 
makes so much sense. These iron weapons have a tendency to go dull unless they are sharpened. And so it is with us. Our propensity, whether we realize it or not, left to ourselves is to move towards being dull. It's not a nice thing to say in church, but it's, it's, it's true, which is one of the prevailing messages in the book of Hebrews. Watch out that y'all don't start to get dull. Watch out that you don't start to move in this direction because naturally that is what is going to start to happen. If we don't deliberately invite sharpening into our lives, we will go dull. It's just the way it works. We will start to veer into a life of convenience. We will start to veer into a life of ease that has no impact on the darkness any longer. We'll start to go with the flow and we'll start to go with what is most enjoyable, what feels most beneficial to me. And gradually, we start to find ourselves caring less about the plight of the hurting in our neighborhoods. We start to care less about those who are vulnerable in our schools. And we just naturally find ourselves caring less about the lost in our county. And soon, we will actually admit to each other, I can't remember the last time I shared the gospel with anybody. What? But that's what you were left on earth for. I know. What happened? What happened? There are tens of thousands of people in our county who will go to hell if they die tonight. And eventually we find ourselves shrugging our shoulders and saying, eh, where do you guys want to do lunch? What? What happened? Heavenly weapons got dull. It's what tends to happen to us. And soon our hearts no longer break for the unborn or the orphan. We're dulling. Our hearts tend to grow dull and wander off into places of ineffectiveness. Now, we are still weapons, just dull ones. We've lost our edge doing little damage. <laughs> A kingdom of darkness doesn't quiver when we walk by anymore. It's like, no, no, they're dull. They're not going to accomplish much. What the author to the Hebrews and the writer of the Proverbs agree on is that you cannot be your sharpest weapon self without other Weapons sharpening you. It's not going to happen. And if you are not being actively sharpened, you are actively dulling. It's not like there's two options. If there's no active relationship that brings sharpening, you have become duller. I don't mean less intelligent, y'all. I mean, just blunt. You're a, like a holy butter knife. You can spread stuff, but you can't really cut anything. I'm 
which I think is sadly a description of so much of the church today. Like we're pretty, shiny, but dull. Just pretty, pretty dull. Which is why I think the author to the Hebrews uses the word he uses. He talks about encouragement later, but here he uses the word to spur. He uses this word to, to, to agitate, to, to provoke, like that's a strong word. And the imagery in the Old Testament of like as iron sharpens iron, like that's just, that's pretty vivid language. Why can't you use nicer language? Because once the heart starts to dull, once the heart starts to wander off into comfort and self-absorption, once you get in that space, It takes something pretty spurring to get you to start to move back. Let me rephrase. Once you start to wander into convenience and wander into doing you and and wander into life being about like what's easy and what's most beneficial to you. And someone gets in your way. It will feel like a spur to you. You are not going to be like, oh, thank you. And nay, that's not what the feeling is going to be. It will feel to you like somebody is provoking me. You are agitating me. You don't even know. Not necessarily because they are spurring you, but because of where you're going, the course correction will feel like, "Mm, mm, mm." not particularly enjoyable. I will be agitated by that. And the author is saying, y'all need to do that more for each other. When our hearts start to wander towards dullness, we are not going to thank each other. For calling us back. We may take a swing. It will feel like iron on iron. Ugh. Can we just avoid that? And the writer of the Proverbs says, no, can you actually lean into that? It will feel like a spur. And we'll be like, ah, spurring is not cool. And the author to the Hebrews is saying, no, you need to spur each other. If you're going to get to where you're called to go, if you're going to be your sharpest, most weaponized selves to bring glory to God and do damage to the darkness, you are going to need to to do that. It'll feel like a pain in the side. If you have people in your life who are spurers, mm. (laughs) it's not always the funnest feeling, and you know this to be true. You don't know me. Get out of my business. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur and provoke and agitate one another on toward love and good deeds. When you see the places where I'm veering away from the mission of showing and sharing the love of Jesus, the Bible says, you're up. You're up. It's, it's your responsibility to 
urge me and it will feel to me like spurring. And I'm just warning you ahead of time. I don't like you for it because I like dull. Like dull is pretty comfortable. No one hurts themselves when things are dull. It's safe. But when you start to hear tones in my conversation that suggest I'm no longer moved by the plight of the broken. Just become talking points or or debate points. I need you to tell me "Mm, where I see you going. The direction in which you're wandering. But it may sound like chalk to me. And yet that's exactly what I need if I'm going to move back. I may avoid you for a minute. A church is, we're so bad at this. Like somebody called me out and I'm like, that's it. I'm not talking to them. I'm going to surround myself with other dull people. And together we'll mock the sharp people and talk about how they're too sharp. But when you know I'm not sharing the gospel, spur me. When you notice I never talk about Jesus, but I talk about everything else, like provoke, provoke me. Again, this is not fun, which is why I think we don't do it often. And the church ends up staying dull. This grates this, this goes against, which I think is part of the word. It, it goes against something you are doing. That's what sharpening means. It's going against. Spurring and provoking is going against. The, word, the reason this word makes sense is because you are moving somewhere and I'm going against you a little bit. And it's not comfortable and so we stop doing it. Because it doesn't necessarily create happy feelings. As if the mission of the church was ultimately about stirring in each other, thrilling feelings. But I'm telling you, if we don't find ways to step in and provoke, the church stays dull and the darkness permeates. And then we'll get on social media and complain about the darkness. It's a fascinating thing. If we don't have people who get in our way and disagree with us and say what we need to hear, we are spiritually dull and may not realize it. If you cannot sit here and think, who are the people who would show up if I was wandering away from mission and away from Jesus? If you can't think of those people, I'm telling you, you're in a dangerous place moving towards or maybe living in dullness. And the crazy thing about this, because I know some of you have tried if you're like me, is you can't sharpen yourself. Like you can try with this whole like me and Jesus in the closet and me and my Bible. Um, Yeah, but there is a certain element of your sharpness that is reserved for other people and you Cannot pull it off without them. As iron sharpens iron, I'll sharpen myself. Like, all right? Just an awkward thought. 
You're just spurring yourself, trying to move yourself forward. It's just not the way it was designed to be. Okay, I think it's worth um, pointing out a couple of provoking principles that show up in Hebrews chapter 10 so we can at least consider what it looks like to take steps in this direction with each other. But um, if we're going to do this well, I think there are a couple of things that we need to see. Again, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 up here reads, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I want to say something about the purpose of provoking. Um, The purpose of provoking is to move each other towards loving Jesus and living his mission. That's the purpose of it. If I don't care about that purpose, I'm probably not going to be interested in leaning in this way. And if I don't care about that purpose for you, I'm probably not going to lean in this way. But let me also say this. If I don't care that you love Jesus more and that you live his mission in this world more, I need to leave you alone. I have no business provoking you Um, because the purpose of this provoking, it's not just provoking to get under people's skin. It's provoking to move you towards Jesus and to move you towards living more abandoned to his mission. If I don't care about this purpose, now I'm just critical. Now I'm just mean. Blaming it on, I'm an Enneagram 8. Like, no, you're just being me. Thank you, whoever that was that's been reading up on the the Enneagram. Um, If I don't really care that my kids love Jesus more and live to show him off in, in their world, then I don't want them to be safe. Now, I mean, harp. I may write them on other issues, but that's not going to be what is being described here. And some of us may do that as parents, like we're constantly on our kids about a variety of things, but none of them are about the purpose of them loving Jesus and living his mission. That's not biblical provoking. That may be parenting or motivating in other ways, but no, this biblical provoking is tied to Who are the people in my world that I want to see living a flame for Jesus and running after the broken and running after the lost? Provoking has at its heart a desire to see people love Jesus more and live on mission. Look again, Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It's not just provoking. It's provoking you toward something. It is spurring the horse toward a course. And that course is Jesus. And what Jesus calls us to do. And to be about in this world. Love and good deeds. I cannot forget that. I care about you enough to want you to be your sharpest weapon Self, because I know at the end of the day, that is what is going to matter most. When you look Jesus in the eye, he will ask you, 
about how you loved him and how you lived out his mission in the world of making disciples, his mission of loving the hurting and the broken in his name. And we know that Matthew chapter 25, that's what he's going to ask us about. And if I care about you, I want you to live in light of that ultimate reality. If that's not why I'm getting under your skin and being willing to get in your way, then it's not what the Bible is describing as spurring one another. I do. I think some people in the church just like to be provokers, just agitators in the name of keeping it real. They just cut, but they never sharpen because they've not embraced the purpose of seeing others move towards love and good deeds. It's just about pointing out faults and it makes us feel spiritually superior in those particular areas. So the question is, do you care about the purpose of the people around you loving Jesus more and living to love the broken and the hurting and the lost in their world more? And if so, that should be enough to cause you to be willing to say, man, I'm getting in your way and we're not going to enjoy this, but for the sake of what we've been called to do, I will. Um, if not, man, our churches are going to stay dull. And again, we will continue to pray for a bunch of things. These one another's, this is one of those places where I believe God looks at us and says, um, how about you? You know, we were like, God, move among us and do your thing. It's like, you do it. Like, I'm inviting you to take certain steps. And are you willing to do that? Uh, second thing is proximity. Proximity. I, um, this is so key to see both in the Proverbs and in Hebrews, proximity, because iron cannot sharpen iron unless they're pretty close. Proximity. The closer we are, the better I can provoke you. I don't know how many of you have siblings and you just know that to be true. Mm, mm -mm. When I was growing up, no, <laughs> no one could annoy me faster than my older brother. Nobody. My word. I would say stuff. I didn't know. I knew till I would say it because he would get under my skin and all of a sudden this stuff would just come out of me as he used his God-given gift of annoyance. I would slam things and throw things that I liked. They were mine, my toys. But he would just drive me insane. And all of a sudden, I am triggered. And I am lashing out. I would call him all kinds of names. Just because he'd figure out a way to get under my skin. I'm not touching you though. Am I touching you? Mom said not to touch you. But I'm not touching you. And I would freak out. You're a mango-headed kangaroo face. I would say. Because we live in Australia. And uh, he'd be laughing. Then I'd get even more agitated. And then I'd take a swing at him. And right as I hit him in the pancreas, my dad would typically walk in. 
then I'd be grounded like for, for, for a week. I'm like, that was so worth it. You know, um, he made me do it though, dad. He made me do it. My dad always so logical. Kondo, he can't make you do anything. Like, okay, true. But he made it really hard for me not to sock him right in, in the kidneys. Proximity. My brother could get me so triggered so fast because he lived in my bedroom. He knew me so, so well, fortunately and unfortunately. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider, it says, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That word consider um, is not a word that means to think about. It's a word that means to get to know really well. The, the, the verse literally leads, reads, let us consider one another and how we may spur one another on. Let us get to know each other by observing closely and carefully. He is talking about relationship with each other. He's encouraging the church, get to know each other well, beyond the surface, beyond the veil, beyond these personas that we put on to impress each other and to hide our flaws from each other. Can you get behind all of that and start to know each other? Like, who are you really? And tell me your story. And what are your passions? And what makes you tick? It is this process of getting to know each other. Get in these contexts where you can know each other well. Where you can be real with who you are. Because as I get to know you, now I know how to get under your skin. Now I know what makes you tick And now I can so much more beautifully urge you towards Jesus and towards living his mission. I can't make you do it, but I know how to make it super hard for you not to. Because I know you. To live out this provoking, this urging requires proximity. If I don't care to know you, I don't care to sharpen you. If I don't care to know you, I don't care to sharpen you. Now I just care to correct you. Now I just care to criticize you. Now I just care to be all up in your business. I can't see you in a public context twice a month. And be like, I know what's going on in your life. And start talking about how you need to da, da, da. Like, listen. You are working from sound bites. That's what's wrong with our whole world. Like, I read one little line about this person. And uh, now I've formed an entire... No. This invitation is to come closer. And to get to know. Now, there are other one another's that give me permission to come talk to you if you're tripping the elderly in the streets. Like, I'll come talk to you about that. You don't know me. I didn't have to know you to tell you that that was wrong. 
But this is not one of them. When he uses this idea of spurring, he's talking about something that happens in proximity. He's talking about something that happens in close context. Provoking is the privilege of proximity. Proximity gives the best perspective for provoking again because now I know you. And now you know I care about you. And now I know how to sit with you. And now I've learned how to speak to you. You may stop talking to me, but you know I care about you. So stop acting like a, you know, difficult whatever. Right? This is about proximity. Now I know how to get under your skin. I can shout at you from a distance, but I cannot sharpen you from a distance. I cannot spur you from a distance. Not the way this is speaking about it. I wonder if those are the kinds of relationships we are growing to have with other believers. Now, I can just get close to you for a variety of different reasons. But if I understand the purpose that I want to be part of your story of loving Jesus and living his mission, that that's what I want to see for you, then we may be close and talk about a lot of different things, but I'm not going to miss the opportunities to help to push you forward. I wonder if you have growing relationships like that. And then one more thing, practice. Again, we talk about practicing a lot of different things. And this is a word you're going to hear often around here because part of it is just our acknowledgement. Like, man, we're not going to get things right. But nor are we going to quit because something was difficult and, and, and we didn't figure it out quickly. No, the, the calling of Scripture, in fact, this whole section of Scripture is talking about this practice. Don't quit doing it. And then when he writes this passage of scripture, there are people who started doing it and then they stopped. They started getting together in context where they could get to know each other. And then they stopped showing up because it's vulnerable and it's uncomfortable. And it's not always nice that people are telling you how things need to be different in your life. And so he's constantly reminding them, don't quit on this. And the reason he reminds them of that, because our propensity is not just towards dullness. Our propensity is towards bailing out. On proximity. Man, if I know I'm not doing well, the first people I want to avoid are the people closest to me. I want to go hang out with the people that I don't know too well. Because then I can put my veil back on. I can put my mask back on. But this practice thing is continue doing this and figuring it out. Taking steps and stumbling a little bit. We will need to deliberately practice this. This is why, by the way, you hear us recommend small groups regularly around here. That's where this happens. That's where we get to know people. That's where the veil starts to come down um, a little bit. That's where we get to st- speak into each other's lives as we get to know each other. That's why we encourage what we call around here, these missional communities, these small groups. And if you want to know why we call them missional communities, because we never want to lose sight of the purpose of the community. It's mission, his purpose, love and good deeds. Let's get out into the world. 
but it's community. We sit in proximity and we get to know each other. And so you're going to hear us invite you into these places because we believe that's where it happens. It's not going to happen on a Sunday morning because a bunch of us got together in a building and we said a couple of words to each other in the lobby or over at the coffee pot. It, it happens because we get into these contexts and we continue to practice this even when it gets hard because it will. It will. And yet if our desire is to see each other living our weaponized, sharpest, best, then I think we are going to be willing to step into these spaces. And this is also just to me a a good reminder as we study these passages that this call to sharpen each other, to spur each other, you can do this for everybody. If you leave here and like, oh my word, I have to sharpen every, no. Proximity. You cannot be that kind of close with everybody. But start somewhere. Where is that happening through you to at least some body? So when you are talking about getting into small groups here in, in the coming weeks, I, I, I trust that you are going to take that step or you're going to re-up in this process, even though it's not necessarily easy for the sake of our mission. Uh, Listen, we we want to be everything that God has called us to be. I want that for you. I trust that you want that for me. So my question is, are those the kinds of relationships you have and with whom? And maybe it'd be good for you to just sit down and say, I'm going to actually deliberately make a list of those who are playing a sharpening role in my life. And I'm just begging you, if you say, I can't think of anyone who is after me loving Jesus and living his mission. I'd encourage you, come talk to us, um, help us connect you, help us journey with you so we can together start in this direction. I'm thankful that there are a few people. I wish I could tell you that it's a big group of people. It's not a big group of people. Um, man, who will sit closely with me and they'll just tell me some really hard things. Um, I don't enjoy it. Um, I will try and postpone the meetings. I'll try and put them off if I can, because I know that they're not going to feel comfortable. But at the end of it all, I'm a sharper version of me because of it. And that's the prayer. But the question is, are you willing to step into these spaces? And so, Father, I, I thank you that you have created us for more than just a dull and safe existence. You've called us to love your son, Jesus, and to live his mission. They are hurting and broken and dying people in our world. And they are our assignment because that's why you left your church on earth. To represent you in those places, to push back darkness, to bring about hope, to destroy the lies that set themselves up against the truth who is Jesus himself. Please help us not to wander into dullness and please do something in our church and in our midst that doesn't allow us to accept dullness as okay. So spirit of the living God, just awaken us with a fresh hunger and a fresh desire to live fully engaged and to do that, to find people that we can come alongside and spur along. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.